Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, the poet and author Maxine Benneber-Clark is joined by Tui On, author of the critically acclaimed poetry collection Turbulence, for a poetic dialogue to read recent poems and discuss reading and writing poetry in a changing world. Before we start, a quick reminder, as this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there's been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. Hello, welcome on behalf of this ship and on behalf of Readings. I am so pleased to see each and every one of you here. It is so good to be gathered in the one spot to be celebrating the work of our wonderful Maxine Beneba-Clark. Before we get going, though, I reckon while we're sort of acknowledging the power of words and the power of poetry, that we need to also reflect on the First Nations people and all the beautiful stories and song lines that they have gifted to us so that we can make sense of Australia, so that we can make sense of the country that we live on. I know that when we do an acknowledgement of country, it's important that I stand in front of you all and say, hey, I send my respects to the First Nations people, to their elders past, present and emerging. But I reckon in 2021, that's not enough. It's not enough just to say, hey, we live on land that's not ours. Hey, we're sending our respects. I reckon we've also got to send our gratitude. We've got to send our gratitude to the First Nations people who have given us means of understanding the country that we live in, that have given us an understanding of the trees and the mountains and the rivers and the creeks. And once we really acknowledge that in our hearts, then I reckon we can walk forward and we can walk with some pride in our steps. It's my privilege now to introduce you to someone who has been writing poetry, who has been examining poetry since the beginning of time, it seems to me. You can see her poetry on the streets of Melbourne. You can see it on the streets of Adelaide. You can pick it up at your very favourite independent bookshop readings. And, of course, I'm talking about the critic and poet, Toy. How gorgeous to have you here today to be asking Maxine questions about her latest collection. We are delighted to have you here at Readings Carlton. If we were there right now, and not just believing and making believe, I think that you wouldn't be able to hear yourself think, Toi. I think your <laughs> would be so loud that you would have to wait just a little moment before you took the microphone from my hands. That is so sweet. Thank you, Chris, for such a warm welcome and acknowledgement. I am absolutely thrilled to be here. I only wish we were all three of us and all the audience members are in the same room in a readings bookshop. But alas, we are back in Zoom land. But no matter, I think we'll have a great night anyway. All right. Now, I've been fangirling over Maxine for years, ever since I read her first book. And the sentiment hasn't changed with this book. Let me just quickly introduce Maxine and we can get started on talking about poetry because I think it'll be a very interesting discussion So Maxine is the author of 10 books for children and adults, including the short fiction collection Foreign Soil, the memoir The Hate Race, and the recently released picture book When We Say Black Lives Matter. 
we are going to talk mostly today, because that's all we have time for, about her most recent book, How Decent Folk Behave. This is her fourth collection of poetry. Maxine, welcome. I wish I could just basically hug you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Toi. Yeah, thank you for agreeing to be part of this conversation. Um, it seems like a really beautiful time to come together. I wish it was in person um, and have a little conversation about poetry and the times. And I'm hoping that you'll perhaps also read and talk about some of your work this evening as well. I'll try and sneak one or two in, but that's all, because <laughs> this is your launch. So let me just quickly talk about the Nina Simone quote that prefaces your collection, Maxine. Can you just tell us about it and can you just read it out? Yeah, so an artist's duty, as far as I'm concerned, is to reflect the times. Um, and that was a quote that really um, struck me. You know, I don't always have quotes in the beginning of my books, but mm. when I was writing this collection, it was the, these are poems that were written in the last two years. And, you know, the last two years have been such pressure points, I feel, for humanity, you know, going through the pandemic and bushfires and climate change and, you know, the Me Too movement and, you know, the galvanization of the Black Lives Matter movement. And it just seemed almost like, how can I not respond to this and write into it? And that's kind of, I suppose, the starting point for the poems in this collection. Did you have that as an inspiration at the beginning, Maxine, or did you sort of like find it at the end as a, as a good summation of the themes in the collection? I didn't have it in mind at the beginning. And mm. some of these poems, some of the poems in the collection were initially written when I was working for the Saturday paper and mm. kind of reflecting news that was happening on it at the time. And some of them were kind of my own, this is something that I've seen that I really want to digest. And so probably about halfway through, maybe a year ago, yeah. I saw an interview with Nina Simone uh, where she was kind of asked how she picks her, her themes. And, and the reply was so... Uh, matter of fact, you know, you can probably you know, Google this later and find the interview on, on YouTube. Yeah. She just kind of, it was kind of like almost how can I not respond to what's happening out there? Um, and so it just kind of spoke to me when I saw it. Um, I thought, yes, yes, this is exactly how I'm feeling at the moment. Yeah, Because that's what really struck me upon reading this collection, Maxine, just how incredibly topical it is. To me, it reads as a as a poetic diary of what's going on in the last, as you say, two years, you know, and my, have we been through a lot, you know, mm -hmm. not just this pandemic we're still living through, but as you say, the Black Lives Matter movement, Me Too, climate change, things that we're still going through now that it's very hard to not write about these things um, is almost you sort of it's in your conscious constantly and at night time it's almost like you have to sort of get it out there to, to purge you know so yeah mm. I thought very much it is very much a collection of the times and and I was really thrilled actually as a, as a poet that you finally bought another fourth poetry book out how long why did it take so long <laughs> <laughs> look I think oh, I feel like with a poetry collection I really need to have this strong urge that I need to put something out. Now is the time to put something out, more so than any other book. Um, and I think, you know, that's partly because 
no one ever kind of rides you for a poetry collection, or in my case anyway. You know, it's not someone saying, oh, Maxine, we really want another poetry collection. <laughs> I do. I, well, I'm sure there's loads of people in the in the audience there would say, yes, we did. We were waiting for years. So I was really thrilled about all else that you write that there was another poetry collection coming. So yeah. you do have fans of poems. Which Can we just talk a little bit about your background? Would you consider yourself, Maxine, as first and foremost a poet? Because, I mean, even your Twitter tag, alludes to the fact that you have, you know, slam poet beginnings. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I started out doing spoken word. I, you know, mm. studied creative writing at university, but when I started out as a poet, it was the spoken word that really I gravitated towards. That was partly because of barriers to publishing, you know, sending mm. up work, waiting for it to come back and, you know, not being accepted and kind of discovering that there's, there's this whole world where there's an open microphone <laughs> that can stop you. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was the start of it for me. And for years, you know, probably, oh, God, about six or seven years, I was only writing poetry. And I'm interested in, I might turn that question back on you as well, because I know, you know, you've been a critic, you've followed my work for so long. Why poetry for you, given you kind of work in prose, you know, it, as, as a day job, if you will? To me, they're on both, both sides of the coin, mm. criticism and poetry. People find it weird that I'm a critic and a poet and they, don't, they just see it as some sort of, you know, mutually exclusive. Mm. But both sides, I think, you, you have to be quite, this attention to detail, you have to be very detailed to nuance as a critic and as a poet. Mm. And I think it was, I think writing poetry for me was, it gave me a sense of freedom, Maxine, that criticism couldn't, because I couldn't say everything I wanted as a critic, because you have, you know, boundaries um, of, of what you can say, depending on the publication and what you're writing about. Whereas poetry, particularly the poems I write, they're a lot more personal and confessional. So I'm not basically really harming anybody except myself unless if I want to put it out there well not so much harming myself but putting, making myself vulnerable in the way that you know I really couldn't do it as a, as a critic because I, that's like I'm sort of so removed I have to be objective whereas poetry gave me freedom to be as subjective and as confessional as possible but you know my life but transformed with art so it's not really my life but it is but it isn't I'm not going to tell you that it was exactly like that mm -hmm. but as we all know you know you can sort of write things and sort of like pretty it up a bit and leave people guessing I think is always a good thing people just have wonderful you know discussions and whether or not this is real life or not and I don't think as artists as writers we need to actually say yes or no it's like well yeah I don't know if you figure it out I'm not, I'm not saying you know up to you yeah. <laughs> Can we just actually, um, let's just get you to read one of your poems first, Maxine, then we'll discuss. Um, let's read Generation Zoom to get into the times because it's so very much, you know, we are very much in Zoom plan. Ah, uh, yes. Strange to read this poem on Zoom. <laughs> yes, exactly. You're getting very metafictional here. <laughs> Absolutely. This is Generation Zoom. In the third week of the pandemic, schools started closing Workers were sent home and they started to call the youngsters Generation Zoom. Named, of course, for that chat app all of them seemed to use. Logging in for FaceTime, completing maths lessons online, dancing TikTok feeds on loop, clicking into Insta News. And everyone was asking, what on earth will become of WhatsApp's children? 
visiting friends through cracked iPhone glass and advised to stay away from their own mama's arms, who weren't allowed to warm to touch. Because don't you know, there's a virus going round and less is love, baby, less is love. Parented from 1.5 meters away. What hope the future when a whole generation grew up this way, socially distant, quarantined and self-isolated. No giggly schoolgirl notes tucked into the pockets of square-checked tunics, nor the exquisite stomach churns you used to get when someone you liked stood close to you. But Generation Zoom. They saw the neighbors from two doors down put a note in their letterbox asking if they still had food. Generation Zoom streamed bitter fights in supermarket aisles over toilet paper and baked beans, but they also saw us learn how to grow the world from seed, how the city's silent was so beautiful, how for the first time in so long, dad was home and he vacuumed and forgot to act like dinner was his due. And all the family were on the same time frame in the same house, defrosting bolognese and bickering and bunking in. Elijah's boyfriend was finally allowed to phone, even though mum was still confused about the whole gay thing. Because don't you know, <laughs> there's a pandemic going on and love is love, ma. Love is love. In the end, we'll be okay because Generation Zoom grew up today. Learning stocks can be lost as fast as accumulated, that health is wealth and love is gold and life will find a way. Thank you so much, Maxine. I love that last line, life will find a way. It's such a, a poem that sort of, to me, is like a seesaw. You know, this happened, but then that happened, but then you say up and down and that last line, is so it's very heartwarming you know we always find a way we're struggling we are struggling now but to write it sort of from the perspective of children I think was is a wonderful thing plus your sing-song voice which is just a wonderful <laughs> thing I think as a performance poet uh, I'm always in awe of performance poets because I, I sort of write for the page I, I find it really weird to read things out even now so but you know that was one of the tips we're going to just quickly talk about if there were number one tip if you're any sort of aspiring poets in the audience there I would say read your poems out loud and that was what um, Jordi Elberston, who edited my book, told me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what are you talking about? She said, read it out loud because only then will you work out if your voice does anything weird, you know, if, if it's sort of when, when your breath stops in a certain way, the way you pronounce syllables, if it trips, read out your words loud. Would you suggest that as a, as a good tip for inspiring poets? Fantastic tip. You know, I often mm. find, you know, most of these poems, and when I write my poetry, I initially usually work with pen and paper or, you know, yeah. whiteboard and whiteboard marker before I type them down. And in that process of reading things aloud, a lot of editing gets done. You know, yeah. Yeah, Geordie's right, that idea of, 
you know, that maybe you, I guess as, as someone who performs spoken word, I try to put my poems on the page so that the reader takes them off the page the same way that I would read them, if at all possible. And so, yeah, you suddenly start to think about line spaces and indents and all of those things that maybe were a bit arbitrary before you actually heard it out loud um, or, or designed for the page. Exactly. Sometimes you just put too many syllables on the same line and your tongue is just sort of stumbling and tripping over it and you think okay this is not working I'm gonna to have to sort of like use one syllable instead of two just really basic technical stuff like that which you don't really think about until you actually read it out loud yeah, yeah. I'm just going to talk um briefly I think well we'll see if we can try and keep it brief about just the state of poetry in Australia at the moment Maxine because I don't know about you but I'm really heartened over the last couple of years about the diversity of poets um, that's just coming out now. I'm reading a stack of poetry collections because I'm judging for the Vic Premier's Lit Awards. I know this award you judged last year, so you'll be aware of, you know, the, the voices that are coming out. Yeah. And I just find that it's only in the last couple of years that there's just been, like, just this diverse Indigenous Poets from from non English speaking backgrounds, non binary poets, they've also suddenly come out the woodwork, and it's like, wow, what what, ha- what happens? Because for a lot, lot of time, for years and years and years, it wasn't like this. Would mm-hmm. you agree with that? Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And I think even you know, my first poetry collection, which is just a kind of tiny little chapbook, you know, forty pages or so, was published in I think two thousand and seven. Um, But I was reading a lot of poetry before then. And I think even then the landscape looked very, very different to the way it looks now. Um, And I had a similar experience to you. You know, when you're judging one of these prizes, you just sent a box of, you know, 70 to 100 books of, of poetry and you get this incredible survey. And I think you know, Australian poetry, what's happening is really exciting. You know, both the new voices that are coming through, the different poetic forms that people are writing in, you know, whether people tend to write, you know, I know that last year there were quite a few that were extended narratives where the whole book is, you know, actually it tells a story. Like a prose poem that's like an extended, yep. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a really exciting time for Australian poetry and for young poets, and, and we've waited long enough. I know, haven't we? And yeah. you know what? I was really also heartened to hear when the um, Stella Prize finally agreed mm. to to accept poetry as, you know, as part of their awards, I think as of next year, and it's only taken them 10 years or something. Yeah. I remember I heard that and went, oh, my God, about time, about time that poetry is considered important enough to, you know, for poets to submit their work. What has taken you so long? It's heartening. I think things are slowly starting to change. Yeah, it feels like a, a massive step in the right direction. Mm. You know, the thing is, for various reasons, you know, I suppose a lot of us come from oral traditions, you know, where storytelling is kind of an act of poetry in terms of writers of colour. And so there are a lot of extraordinary women writers in Australia who only write poetry. Just looking through the, the books I'm reading and just from my own experience and from yours too, do you have a theory why sort of loads of people from just marginalised backgrounds write poetry and nothing else? I mean, you know, people have asked me that. Why? I mean, I'm sick to death of people saying, why don't you write a novel? And then I have to get into these arguments with people. Why? Why do you say that? You're saying poetry is not good enough. You know, so we're getting to this combative mode and I get totally defensive and I start to yeah. sit there trying to argue why, you know, poetry is just as good as any other art form. Yes, that, that, that's the bane of my existence. You know? <laughs> I've written in every other form except for the novel and 
it's like the novelly novelly seen as the ultimate you know <laughs> that magnum opus once you've written exactly. a sprawling novel you're a real writer um and you know I mean I think it's partly also we tend to in Australia see our baseline as the English canon you know that that's what that's what historically you know we've been compared to you know um and mm. you know when we when we consider that you know there have been stories and legends and myths and song lines on this country for 60,000 years that shouldn't be the starting point for storytelling in this place um but you know because of colonization and and you know that mindset it is and i think you know it is partly because you know, when you look at, you know, my own ancestry, for example, and my parents are from the West Indies, our family's part of the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade. So you have a population of people who haven't been allowed to keep their own language, haven't been allowed to read and write. Um, so how do you pass down those traditions? And, you know, it's through storytelling, it's through song, it's through sitting around the, you know, the, the fire or, or whatever, you know, sitting around the dinner table and telling those stories. And I think that that's, to me, that's a large part of the reason why uh, writers of colour often gravitate towards poetry. It is that kind of instant, you know, the African griots, that kind of, um, you know, just inclination to spin a tale, yeah. Could I just ask, because I don't know, Maxine, are any of your poetry collections studied at school? No, I don't think so. Mm. Uh, it's interesting because the my short fiction collection of Foreign Soil has yeah. been on syllabus for four years and The Hate Race, the memoir, goes on next year, I think. Mm. But not, not poetry, which is really um, interesting. Well, I reckon this one should definitely be on the curriculum. Um, I think your publisher should, you know, try and get it on because it is so topical and so relevant. And, and yeah, why not have poetry on the curriculum? I mean, I don't even know what kids study today in terms of poetry. Do they study poetry in schools? They do. They, they do. do. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are a range of different um, poetry collections. I know that my, my child who's in year... Uh, 10 this year was doing Wilfred Owen, you know, okay. war poems or anti-war poems. Um, and I, I, you know, I did think of slipping one of my books in the bag and saying, <laughs> out and start reading this instead, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, yeah. I'm not going to pull shade on, on Owen. I'm sure he's a great <laughs> poet. But seriously, now we're talking yeah. about anti-war poems. Um, it's just, yeah. to me, it's just, it's part of what's wrong with, with you know, the, the, thinking of poems in this country. People think of poetry. I have this problem all the time. People think of poetry, they think, oh, God, you have to have a lit degree. You have to know all these special words in Latin. And it drives me nuts And because I read a lot of poems just for my own interest. And it's, it's a particular bugbear of mine. And, you know, I've even written a poem in, in Turbulence about it, why, why people don't read modern poetry. It's because it's almost like deliberately, annoyingly, impenetrative you know so people like poets write and they're just like they're almost like really happy but no one understands it because it just means that they're incredibly I don't know intelligent it drives me nuts because yeah. I have a degree I've been a critic for 20 odd years if I don't understand your bloody poem how do you think <laughs> the average person down the road will understand it and it defeats the whole purpose poetry is for and I feel like you know Rick from from uh, the young ones but 
Poetry should be for the people, you know, should be for the elite. Uh, and yeah, I think uh, it's a lot to do with the poets themselves as well and making it hard for people. And I know I'm being controversial, so please don't, don't, you know, flood my Twitter with all those nasty comments about it, but I don't care. <laughs> you know, I agree. I think that there is that sense that a lot of people don't read poetry because they feel like it's inaccessible. Yeah. And to me, poetry should be the point of access to literature, you know. Um, and, you know, when you think about, you know, Kendrick Lamar winning the Pulitzer Prize and, you know, Bob Dylan winning the Nobel Prize for Literature and, you know. I mean, a songwriter. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That is, what, what is a songwriter but a writer of poems, really, yeah. when you get down to it? Yeah. Will you, Toy, will you read us that poem that you spoke of? No, because that, that you have to see that on the line. You have to see that on the page because I oh. deliberately set it out like a modern poem all yeah. over the place. So completely yeah. messy with, you know, yeah. it's like this is you want to see what a modern poem looks like, read this poem. Yeah. And so it's a complete satirical piss take, basically. Okay. So <laughs> everyone watching, you'll have to buy the book. It's called Turbulence. Yes. <laughs> just for that, the- just just have a look at that poem, just for that poem itself and have a yeah. laugh. So yeah, yeah, I know. I got in a bit of a bit of trouble with that poem because I had a lot of people going, really? Hmm. But, you know, looking at that really snooty way and I just yeah. don't care, you know, whatever. Yeah. This is what I think. So Yeah, it's funny. In my um, last collection, Carrying the World, I had a, a poem that was kind of a similar, it was called We Want Poetry Back. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was about, you know, this idea of poetry, um, you know, being guarded, you yeah. know. You're not allowed to have it unless you meet certain requirements. Yeah, I'm glad to see that shift in the, you know, a lot of the collections that are coming out now. Um, And, you know, there's a sense that, oh, you can understand it so it's not as it's not as intellectual as, you know. That's why I can't stand it. It is such a patronising way of of considering poetry. It's like, well, oh, it's too easy or it rhymes or, you know, it's only got four lines or whatever. Yeah. Therefore, it's not as good as something that's, you know, 60 lines and quotes Latin. Yeah, it's just a constant issue. But anyway, let's just actually get you to read another poem, Maxine. Which one? I just choose one. I don't. They're all wonderful. So whatever you like to read. I might read this poem, Muscle Memory. Um, I feel like I'm reading all the pandemic ones, but <laughs> well, <laughs> lean into it. <laughs> I actually haven't read this one from, and I've read it out loud to myself. But this, this is a debut, so you're all getting okay. something. <laughs> Right. They say communities of colour are the worst affected in this pandemic, that they catch it at a faster rate, get sicker when they do, have more comorbidities and a higher ratio of death, display more extreme vaccine suspicion and are far less likely to seek medical help. What they don't say is communities of colour are working in the nursing homes, are cleaning and staffing hospital wards, make food in the kitchens of healthcare spaces, are disposing of infected bodies and toxic medical waste, but because of economic disparity, we are more likely to live in cramped or difficult living situations where it is almost impossible the disease will not spread. Communities of colour remember the Tuskegee experiment that just shy of 400 black sharecroppers were deliberately infected with syphilis left to go blind, to die, to lose their minds. We have not forgotten. 
Communities of colour were given smallpox-infected blankets. We remember how Henrietta Lacks cells were harvested without permission. That beyond hospital doors, our babies die faster, our mothers don't make it, we are given less pain relief, have worse medical and operation outcomes, are at a higher risk of almost any kind of death. Communities of colour know that yesterday, before our well-being could be tangibly tied to theirs, they really didn't give a fuck whether or not we lived. Thank you. Thank you, Maxine. I think that was one of the really powerful things I found about this collection is that you write very eloquently and very about, you know, very simply in a way about race and class, you know, pandemics and everybody sort of whines and whinges about it. But when we when you sit down to it, who are the ones who suffered most? They are people of colour, the people who don't have much money, they're the Uber drivers, they're the ones, you know, working in supermarkets and a lot of the times there are you know colored folk they're like you know students they're just and we sort of tend to forget that when we're all just whining that we can't do certain things or whatever and there's loads of people who are far more affected and have suffered a lot more mm. and your yeah your whole collection I think is you're very much on the side of those who don't have a voice really or whose voice are drowned out by constant noise about property prices and how things are opening up again and, yay, capitalism, you kind of forget that people are still struggling, people who can't get access to JobKeeper for loads of reasons. So it's, it's a good reminder, I think, and absolutely necessity for us all to remember there's always people worst off and always people struggling. Yeah, I think part of the challenge with this collection was, you know, using kind of you know, that, that sense of, you know, in this 24-hour news cycle that we're yeah. constantly bombarded with and hearing these, you know, I've got family in the UK and, you know, it's hearing my sister talk about the fact that, you know, there's this kind of sense that black people are all infectious, you know, because the community is suffering disproportionately, but no examination of why this is. Why might people want to avoid going to hospital? You know, it's because they, they're scared they're not going to come out because historically that's historically. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, trying to kind of, I guess, dig deeper and use poetry as kind of almost like the antithesis to the news. You know, how can I actually look at this in a way that's, more analytical and creates that space to actually discuss these things. And you talk about a lot about feminism in this collection as well. Do you want to just tell the audience a little bit about the longest poem in your collection, the one that was um, specially commissioned, Maxine? Yeah, there's a poem in the collection titled My Feminism that mm. really is, I suppose, a, a manifesto for a, 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 a new feminism or an evolved feminism. And I wrote it at the time of Women's March, you know, kind of looking looking at people flowing out on the streets with those kind of pink pussycat hats and that moment of kind of, you know, the galvanisation of the, the Me Too movement and seeing there were two, two signs that I saw kind of in social media and on the street. Um, one was uh, there was a black woman and she was just holding up this sign kind of really nonchalantly on the side of the road as all these kind of Anglo-American women streamed past. And the sign said, don't forget white women voted for Trump. And it was this really poignant image for me. And then there was one I think was from the Sydney March 
that said, I'll see all you nice white ladies at the next Black Lives Matter march, right? (laughs) 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 And to me, you know, those two images just crystallised that moment. It was kind of, you know, yes, this is this, this belonging to this movement is conditional on forgetting the intersections of your, your personality and your being. It's kind of as long as you're prepared to forget your other struggles and not ask anyone to become involved in them, then, you know, you, you, you can march. And so really this poem, is, um, it was commissioned by the Victorian Women's Trust for International Women's Day. And yeah, I wanted to write about all of those things and about, you know, class and this idea that, you know, it was a time when I think there was a big campaign for the reduction of childcare fees in Australia. And I remember, you know, when my daughter was in childcare years ago, I was leaving one day, at, you know, when you're kind of dumping the kid and walking out the door. And I just kind of turned around and I said to her, the carer in her room, who was a, a young Muslim woman, I don't, I don't know how you do this, you know? Mm-hmm. We just yeah. kind of look at kids here every day. And she said, no, no one's ever said that to me. You know, no one's ever, you know, we just kind of asked, you know, why has my kid not eaten two sandwiches today kind of thing. And to me, that was a stark contrast that on one hand, here's these kind of, you know, uh, middle-class educated women saying we don't want to pay for childcare. And on the other hand, here are these women who were primarily, you know, migrant women, you know, at least in this, this childcare that my child was in, underpaid, overworked, you know. Um, and so, yeah, the, those images all made their way into the poem. You know, how do we advocate for a feminism where you're not just campaigning for the government to pay childcare fees, you're campaigning for the person doing the childcare to actually have a better standard of living. Um, it's it's a wonderful poem, which I'm not going to get you to read out because it's quite long and I think people need to actually buy the book and read it themselves, Maxine. Um, so I just... Do you have a favourite poem in the collection? Do you one that we've sort of worked at? Because I know there's always like one or two poems that that poets are especially proud of. <laughs> yeah, I think the last poem. I might I might read it because it's very long. Um, mm. But the last poem's titled "Fire Moves Faster," and it really is. It's a it's a survey of 2020. So it's a kind of a, a looking back on the year that was and you know, looking back on the bushfires and the way that the virus evolved and it includes things like, you know, people gathering around their televisions watching Dan Andrews on the press conference and, you know, how Brett Sutton became this stud, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, kind of follows on to watching the American election unfold in that moment where we were essentially watching America party on the streets, you know. Um, So, yeah, this poem just kind of is a sweeping... This it's a wonderful, it's a snapshot, really. It's just like a series of snapshots, that, that last poem, wasn't it? Yeah. That's how I read it. So it was a little boom, 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 with a whole bunch of things yeah. happening, just visually quite amazing, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's see what, we have 10 minutes left, Maxine, so I'm trying to think of questions that uh, won't get us to talk for another 20 minutes because we have to be cut <laughs> off, so. Will you read some work, Chloe? <laughs> I'll, I'll read one. I think I'll, look, I'll read one poem. This is going to be an interesting counterpoint to what we're discussing because here you are talking all the big things in life, all the big events, and I'm going to read the poem about a semicolon. Because <laughs> 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 okay, I haven't. I just have a an obsession with punctuation. So yeah. this poem is called Half Wink. Yeah. It's because if you everybody in the audience you don't know what I'm talking about, if you actually look at a semicolon, it looks like a half wink. Okay, so I'm going to read this one. You had me when I saw that semicolon, gentle half wink, a pause 
within that finger curl, cheekiness and intent. Anyone can place a comma, a little trip, a crease in the smooth, but that mark right there made me stumble. A levelling, a balance, speaks of the measure of us. You had me. And if you looked at the page, there is a semicolon. You really did. <laughs> I'm, I'm reading that poem out particularly just for a reason, not only because I'm stupid about punctuation and semicolons, but because people think, well, what do you write about in poems? And it's basically the answer is anything you want. You yeah, can write about yeah. anything. You can write about big things like, you know, yeah. your collection. And you can write what I've done is just write about a semicolon. So yeah. there's, there's, no, there's no boundaries. Yeah, it's funny. This collection, there's one poem in the collection called Rain and it's written in a child's voice and it's a child observing the, the, ha- the loss of the family house in bushfire. And it's one of the first ones that I wrote in a kid's voice, you know, imagining a child as the observer. And since writing that poem, I've actually started writing a kids, a book of poetry for kids. And it's become, you know, like I'm writing poems about eating peanut butter and poems about being scared of the dark. And it's kind of almost the antithesis to, is what I needed to write after this. But yeah, you're right. It's that sense that um, when people think of poetry, they think of you know, Big lofty topics. Yeah, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? And, <laughs> and, you know, poetry is there to be used for anything. Yeah, you for know? anything you want to. You should be just feel free to write about whatever it is that, you know, you want to. Mm. So, yeah, sure, write about lofty topics, about love and sex and death and life. But, you know, feel free to write about little small things, you know, a child looking at a ladybug, a semicolon, anything that gives you joy or, you know, I write what makes me passionate about. That's how I write poetry. I don't know about how how you write. Um, I think we're going to run out of time. But the only way I write poems, Maxine, is I don't just. I think like fiction writers, I have this. I always think they just sit down and you know you read about these authors. All oh, right, I'm going to put the alarm on and I'm going to write for five hours. I'm going to write two thousand words by ten o'clock. And then and it's like, are you kidding? I, I don't work like that. The only way I actually write a poem is. is I'm absolutely passionate about something and it basically writes itself. That's how I yeah. do it. I don't ever sit down and go, oh, my God, I've got two hours. Let's get a poem out. Yeah, I think that's that's me as well. I mean, yeah. I love peanut butter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. I, yeah, I think, yeah, for me, it's like I don't put pen to paper unless I have a feeling about something that's strong. Yeah. I'm going to have to quickly try and cut you off because we're running out of time. Maxine, do you have any final words for anybody? I do. I have some thank yous. Um, I want to thank everyone for coming this evening. I know that we're all absolutely Zoomed out. So (laughs) thank you. But, you know, now I think bookstores are opening. I've just missed being allowed to have this in person. So thank you, everyone, for coming and spending this evening with us talking about poetry. Thank you to Toy. This was quite short notice. I was very kind of, because I'm Zoomed out, you know, I kind of thought, oh, I won't have a launch. We'll just put it in the... the, um, you know, the shops, uh, but changed my mind. Thank you for readings and Christine. They're absolutely, their support for my work has been absolutely incredible. Um, always, always, you know, they always hand sell my work like crazy. So thank you for your support. I'm going to read the rest of the thank yous because I'll forget people. <laughs> so to my family, you know who you are, particularly Molly and Maya. Uh, thanks to Ernest, who probably heard the ranty versions of these poems before they became poems. Um, to Hashet Australia, 
you know, this is my second poetry collection with them. And, you know, my first um, poetry collections were published by a very small but dedicated publisher, Picaro Press. And to have a publisher like Hashit behind poetry is just a dream. So thank you for taking this book on. Uh, in particular, Fiona, Sophie, Layla, Louise, Madison, and Emma. Uh, Ali Laveau, who was the editor on this poetry collection uh, and her meticulous editing. To Alison Colpoy, who designed this absolutely beautiful cover. I think that's the fourth cover, perhaps, I've had from Alison. Um, and yeah, she always just gets it absolutely right. So thank you. You're incredible. Um, to the, the team at the Saturday Paper, who initially edited some earlier versions of these poems, and just to poetry lovers everywhere and poetry readers everywhere. And last but not least to Robert Watkins, who published my last poetry collection and is no longer with Hachette, but kind of, I guess, sowed the seeds to get poetry on the agenda and for me to end up where I am now. Right. Thank you so much, Maxine. Thanks. This has been such a great conversation. I wish we could continue on indefinitely. And I think we will, like outside of Zoomland, when we can all just head over to Carlton and have a coffee and a pasta and browse and readings and say, actually, finally meet you, Chris. It would be so nice to actually be in the same room as yeah. you. Thank you so much for asking those astute questions of making this conversation about everything that matters. Uh, your expertise on the power of words to both of you meant that all of us that were here in this crowded readings room felt like that we were privy to something important and something that we'll take on with us. Uh, to all of you that joined us, on behalf of Hachette and on behalf of Readings, I am delighted to have you here. And to you, Maxine Beneva-Clark, uh, let me tell you how many ways that Readings loves you. Uh, actually, I don't have enough time, but it's so, so many Thank you for giving us the honour of using our Zoom platform to launch your book. And I cannot wait to raise a glass to you when you can, in fact, see me do so. Uh, to all of you, keep reading. Thank you so much for joining us. So much love. Go forth. Read poetry. Farewell, everyone. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.